0: Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. What a beautiful song. What a beautiful day. If you will, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. Today's sermon is part two of three in the mini-series titled Biblical Roles Defined as we continue to look at doctrine and life in the church. In this first letter to Timothy, so far we have seen there were a number of problems in this church at Ephesus. Some came from within the pews while others from the pulpit. And if you remember in chapter 1 concerning, concerning the, the leadership, the Apostle Paul named certain persons who have swerved from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith by teaching things about the law that they themselves didn't even quite understand. They desired to be teachers of the law, but they weren't up to the task. Two of them, Hymenae, Hy- Hymenaeus, And Alexander went so far as to make shipwreck of their faith. So the Apostle Paul initiated their excommunication, not only because they both proved unfit to lead God's people, but also because they refused to repent. That's the key. When you are addressed with your wrongdoing and you fail to turn from that, that's the problem. And someone may ask, well, still, why would the church take such drastic actions as to put someone outside of its doors? Well, number one is to protect the flock, to protect the flock. The concern was that if the wrongdoers were allowed to remain in their positions of leadership, the internal disruption that would come would, would, would bring harm to the flock. As the Apostle Paul already stated, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And it would bring uh, a criticism also from without, as people love to say, look at the church full of hypocrites. So it has to be dealt with. And number two, uh, the reason they had to be addressed and even excommunicated is to teach them not to blaspheme. To teach them not to blaspheme. See, the whole ultimately is always repentance. That the the, the person would turn from their evil ways. It it, it discerns those, uh, between those who belong to the Lord and who do not. When the person who has been given the spirit of God is put out from the church, he feels this hole. He feels this uh, emptiness and he wants to come back and he's convicted. When the person who is not, really connected to the Lord eternally, leaves and is put out, many times they'll be like, hey, I don't even want to go. I don't even feel like being there. I'm good now. I'm free from the restrictions. So it is a proof, uh, a proof of the person who really belongs and God has initiated and we have to trust that God knows what he is doing. If we were to look deeper into the leadership of this church, we would find that Hymenaeus and Alexander weren't the only two in authority who were unfit to, to, lead, to lead worship. In 2 Timothy, two more of the leaders are named. There's Philetus in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 17, who was teaching the people that the, the resurrection had already come and passed. Uh, then there was uh, Demas, whose love for the world caused him to desert the apostle Paul and go to Thessalonica in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Now, according to some commentators, Timothy was a little timid. So Paul's purpose in writing this section of the letter was to encourage and instruct Timothy regarding what to look for in a man when appointing elders and deacons from this point forward. You've gotten it wrong before. Here it is in written form, what to look for. The first seven verses of chapter 7 deals with elders. Then verses 8 through 13 deals with deacons, which we will hear about uh, next week. Um, And once again, this is not just for the church in Ephesus, but for all the churches that would arise throughout the entire world and throughout all the ages. As Paul stresses in verses 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. My five points for this sermon, don't get nervous, it's five, but I'm not going to be here for an hour, an hour and a half, it's just five points, some are short, some a couple are long. Point number one, the pastor's motivation. Point number two, the pastor's behavior. Point number three, the pastor's vigilance. Point number four, the pastor's family. And point number five, the pastor's experience. I ask that you follow along as I read First Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Since This is the pure word of God and the most precious thing you'll hear. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, but quarrelsome Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have blessed us with truths that are eternal, truths that shape your church, truths that shape us. So as I preach this morning, please use me, please speak through me, please help me, Lord God. And I pray that your spirit would touch each one of us so that it would be crystal clear what is coming from the text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one the pastor's motivation. In verse one, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Two key words I want to look at here are aspires and desires. Both of these words basically mean the same thing, but technically to aspire means to reach out after. It, it describes an external action, while desire speaks of an inward passion, a strong craving uh, derived from within. Like like right now, I desire a Big Mac and fries, right? But I can't aspire. I can't reach out and get it because I am. Preaching, Paul puts these two words together in one sentence to emphasize that this is the type of man who belongs in the ministry. One who outwardly pursues it because he is driven by a strong internal desire. The Apostle Paul himself, who was already a, an apostle and pastor, still had this passion. He illustrates this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16 when he said, woe to me. If I do not preach the gospel, what is it that drives a person to this level of determination? Number one, it's the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God gifts every person as he wills and places that desire on his heart, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And number two, that person who has been gifted to preach recognizes the office of overseer or pastor is a noble task and reaches out for it. He aspires towards the office. John Wycliffe, the 14th century theologian and professor at Oxford, uh, he, he calls this the, uh, 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 the highest service that men may attain on earth because they are preaching the very words of God. I agree. But we must delve into how the biblical role of overseer is defined By God. We assume people know, but many don't. So I'll uh, try my best to define it biblically compared to how it's been used historically. The Greek word Paul uses for overseer is episkopos, Uh, it's where the Episcopal Church derived its name and is sometimes translated bishop. It's also synonymous with the Greek word presbyteros. Found throughout the Greek New Testament, Uh, and it simply means elder or older, and is where the Presbyterian church derived its name. In the New Testament, specifically in Acts chapter uh, 20 and verse 17 and 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1, the word elder or presbyterus is used. But when you continue in Acts chapter 20 and get to verse uh, 28, Paul refers to these elders as overseers or episcopos in verse 28, so that we see these words are used interchangeably. The word elder refers to uh, the life experience of the pastor, while the word overseer emphasizes the responsibility of the pastor to watch over the congregation and meet their spiritual needs. The word pastor itself comes from a Latin word, which means to shepherd. We see these three functions of the overseer, elder and pastor, come together in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Peter exhorts elders to shepherd the flock of God and serve as overseers, caring for the flock as they wait for the chief shepherd, Jesus the Christ. The earliest writings of the church fathers confirmed the role of overseers as the teaching leaders who served alongside deacons to oversee the church with no distinction between overseers, elders, and pastors. Both Clement of Rome, uh, roughly uh, 96 A.D., and the Didache, which was a Christian manual compiled around 100 A.D., speaks to the two offices, Elders and deacons. But over time, throughout the history of the church, they began to add layers onto what it means to be a bishop and then a pastor. Specifically, around the time of Ignatius, which was roughly 40 years after the close of the New Testament. Canon, we, we see this uh, distinction between bishops, elders, and pastors. And then by the time you get to AD 325 at the Council of Nicaea, you have 318 bishops representing their cities or regions come together. Uh, and, and even to this day, traditions, Christian traditions hold to that. Instead of what the Bible teaches as far as these offices being equal, You will see churches will will have these bishops and they will reign over a region and then the pastors will report to them. Scripturally, that's not so. I just wanted to bring that out so that you would know what it's supposed to to be like. Uh, Back to Ephesus. The Apostle Paul was promoting the office of overseer as a noble task. But from what was actually taking place within the leadership at Ephesus, it may have been hard to see. With elements of false teaching coming from some within the leadership position, there was probably caution, suspicion, and even a certain level of disrespect for the office. Like, who would want to be bothered with that? There's so much work and so much accountability. I can picture some of the brothers there wondering if the office was really worth it wondering if leadership was something they should aspire to, even if they did desire it internally. Paul says, yes, it's worth it because it is a noble task. And yes, it can be a difficult task or hard work, but it's a spiritually and morally good work in the eyes of God. It's a satisfying and God-glorifying work when someone sacrifices their life for God's sheep. But it's God's glory that must be the uh, elder's ultimate goal. It has to be for the glory of God, for God's cause. If a pastor is serving for people for their benefit alone, the way that they're sometimes treated by the sheep may cause him to feel like jumping off of a bridge every Monday. Why is that? Because sometimes the sheep aren't so kind. And sometimes the the sheep's weekly reactions to them have become the pastor's ultimate motivation. And that would cause him to be on this roller coaster of feeling good one Sunday because of the praise and feeling bad the next Sunday because of the rebuke or correction. Even if it is godly rebuke and godly correction, it always has to be God. I gave my best for you. God, I I want to be accurate to the text for your glory, for your people to benefit, to grow, to learn how to love you, to learn how to, to, to walk through this wilderness and go back to the text. I don't want to be caught up in the culture because the culture is temporary. The culture says yes on Monday and no on Tuesday, and I don't want your people to be blowing in the wind like that. If the Lord has appointed that pastor to serve, then serving the Lord is where that pastor will find his ultimate joy. Where he will be able to smile when he looks at himself in the mirror. Because when it is all said and done, and they have run the race and fought the good fight, God is the one who will say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been Faithful over a few things, I will make you a ruler over many things. So, if any man here aspires to the office of overseer, you are desiring a noble task. You are desiring a noble task. Don't let fear, doubt, or anyone tell you differently. However, there are qualifications, and it's up to the church to identify these qualifications. No man should ever become an elder strictly because of his own ambitions. The inward call of the man must be matched by the outward recognition of that call or that calling by the church, not only in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but also in chapter uh, 1 of Titus. Um, as I read this morning, specifically verses 5 through 9. Point number two, the pastor's behavior. The list of qualifications from 1 Timothy chapter 3 begins in verse 2. With the heading, he must be above reproach. And then after that, he'll go into the uh, specificity of uh, those qualifications as being a man above reproach. And in the original, this one word, Uh, literally means not able to be held, not able to be held. The man who desires to be an elder in the Lord's church is not able to be held guilty of any vile or continual wrongdoing against anyone inside or outside of the church. No overt or covert habitual sin can remain in the life of one who is to be appointed a pastor over God's flock. And this is not speaking of sinless perfection or anything like that, but it is speaking of a personal life that is beyond legitimate accusation and public scandal. He must be an example for God's people to follow because he's acting in the position of Christ's under-shepherd, standing in the gap as intercessor and protector. His integrity must be beyond question. Also in verse 2, Paul writes, he must be the husband of one wife. The phrase must be is applicable to each of these uh, qualities as we go down uh, the list. Some believe that this requirement excludes single men from the ministry. But if that were so, Paul would have disqualified himself, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, he writes, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So keeping single men from church leadership cannot be what he is saying. Paul is speaking of a one-woman man. A one-woman-man. This qualification is the first on the list because it's speaking about the man's moral and sexual purity. This is the area, one of the main areas, that uh, men are most prone to fall. Uh, This is an area where Christian leaders have just blown by the wayside. And so it has to come high on the list right? Whether it's lust, fornication, pornography, and adultery, they have all played major parts in disqualifying many men from either starting their career as a pastor or finishing their career as a pastor. In the city of Ephesus, marriage was frequently undermined by widespread adultery and uncontrolled sexual immorality, including rampant homosexuality. So being A one-woman man would have been strange in that city. Like, what are you doing? Why don't you go out? Why don't you have fun? What's wrong with you? Paul is warning Timothy. If any man comes forward wanting to pastor this church, knowing this ungodly culture, you must do some investigating. Is this man committed to his wife? If he's not married, does his speech relay an understanding and adherence to God's moral law concerning the body through a one-man, one-woman covenantal relationship. If so, continue with the process. If not, stop right here. He is not qualified to serve in God's church. Point number three, the pastor's vigilance. Still in verse two, the scripture declares an elder must be sober-minded self-controlled and respectable. To be sober-minded is to be vigilant in your alertness. It paints a picture of someone walking late at night in the most dangerous part of the city where you keep your ears and your eyes open, watching for suspicious characters and listening out for danger. This is necessary when it comes to overseeing the church. You're watching for the wolves and listening for divisive speech. The original word for uh, self-control that Paul uses here combines patience with prudence when making decisions. They must not give in to the latest trends in ministry or the culture. For instance, if the church down the block is is raising money by hosting bingo games on Friday nights, the pastor shouldn't begin to think, hmm, This church also is running short of money, so we should should host uh, bingo games and gambling to raise money for God's house. He has to say something is wrong with that. To be respectable uh, from verse 2 means uh, the pastor is orderly and well-mannered. The church is called to imitate the pastor as he imitates Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. If this pastor cannot bring order, if this uh, uh, presumed wannabe pastor cannot bring order and decency to his own life, how can he bring order and teach decency to the church? Also, uh, an elder needs to be hospitable. To be clear on what he's saying, Paul uses a compound Greek word meaning love of strangers. An elder's life and home should be so open that all can see their spiritual character apart from the pulpit. Even when it comes to our unsaved neighbors, the dinner table is one of the best places to talk heart-to-heart about spiritual things, right? Uh, uh, What do you think about life after death? Can you please pass the gravy? (laughs) What do you believe about Christ? Uh, Do you want some more rice? You know, just to speak and see where he is so that you can begin a conversation about eternal things. Many people don't even think about it. They just go on their day uh, staying consumed by social media, staying consumed by the latest program and the news and politics, and one day turns into the next, one month turns into another, year after year, and now they're old and they're wondering what's it all, what's it all about. But inviting people to the dinner table, there's something about it, right? After the uh, 3,000 get saved, one of the first things they do is sit down and break bread together. I believe there's two circumstances that they're talking about. One is the Lord's Supper and one is just having supper, sitting down and discussing Christ, life, eternal things. What's it all about? What is it all about? So a pastor should have that uh, uh, within his uh, schedule, his daily schedule, his weekly schedule. Let's sit down. Can I sit down with this neighbor over here? Can I invite them over? Okay, all right. What am I going to say? Right? Where's my opening? And just try to lead him. Let him know why you get up every Sunday. Why why, why is he watching you come back home every Sunday evening? What, What am I doing? Just to share it with him. In the days of the early church, hospitality was necessary for the spread of the gospel. In those days, the hotels weren't like the fancy ones you guys stay at, right? Uh, They were more like the ones that I stay at, right? They're they're, they're, kind of dirty, they're scarce, you catch anything. I'm just playing, I'm just playing. Sharon Sharon wouldn't allow that, she wouldn't allow that, right? But they did have roadside ends, but they weren't places where you would want somebody who's coming in to spread the gospel to stay. They were, some of them were kind of dangerous, right? So people involved in Christian work need a place to stay as they want to travel and they want to, they want to share the gospel in other regions if God has put that on their hearts. <coughs> so, but when it comes to the next one, the qualification of teaching, this is the only qualification relating to an elder's spiritual giftedness and ability, It's also the only qualification that distinguishes elders from deacons. Everything else is about his character. Why is this so important? Because you need to know um, if he's teaching accurately concerning the text. Whether he's exegeting means drawing out of the text, whatever the text says, instead of eisegeting, putting into the text his preconceived notions, things that he learned growing up. And never really checked to see if they were true. Does his conclusion line up with the expositional reading of the text as a whole? Or is he taking scriptures, picking and choosing from different places to make a point? And when he gets to this point, many people who read the word of God and soak themselves in the text, they will say something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that conclusion right you may not know every book in the bible but when you get a harmonized view the meta narrative of script, scripture you come together and you get this idea that no i can't earn my salvation so something is wrong with him saying i have to keep this up or else i'm in danger of losing it that doesn't harmonize from genesis to revelation and then when someone says, well, you know you have to be baptized in order to be, to be saved, you're saying, wait a minute, something is wrong with that because the whole book of Galatians deals with that. And, and, and Paul is kind of harsh in his letter saying, oh, foolish Galatians, how have you moved from the truth so fast? What happened? And so you bathe yourselves in the word, right? Some of us, we can't remember scripture. Right, we, we, we try, we try, we just can't remember. But when you stay um, with the narratives of the Bible and you grab a book, right, you're able to see how the verses work within the book. And so when someone comes and they teach something that is contrary to Scripture, and they're teaching, like, um, it's, it sounds good, but it, it's just a little off, That little off is enough to send you into hell if you're not saved in the first place. And they invited you to their uh, uh, beautiful home with Bibles all over the place and candles all over the place. But you, going back before you were saved, you're sitting down and you want to hear about this gospel. And they're talking about things you have to do to keep your salvation once you get it. Things you have to do outside of faith to be saved you have to spend time in the word of God because you have many manipulators, many people who are gifted speakers, many people who have degrees and letters behind their names and still they're on their way to hell. You have to be so careful. It's the word of God. And I tell any person who's, who's, who's new in the faith, you have the word of God. It doesn't matter how long this person has been in the faith. You stand on the word of God. You have to. It has to be. So when you get a pastor, a prospective pastor who wants to come and lead your church, and by the way, if you're sitting here and saying, why do I need to hear this? I don't want to be a pastor. Well, here's the thing. And I'm going to touch on it a little later. God calls you as members of a church to know what a pastor looks like because it's you who are going to vote on this person. lead God's people. That's why it's so important to know the qualifications and characteristics of someone you are called to vote on. Just wanted to share that. This pastor also who's called to teach in his teaching and in his heart as you talk to him, as you interview him, as you just talk to him uh, informally is his heart to preach the gospel, to save souls. Is that in his preaching? Is that in his message that Christ died for sinners? Not for the healthy. Not for the self-righteous who has it all together. But for those who know they're sick. For those who know that apart from him they're on their way to hell. And there's nothing they can do about it except believe because the blood pays the cost for sin. Does he Exude that when he preaches. I like the way I like the way uh, uh, the first century, uh, seventeenth century Puritan Richard Baxter Baxter phrases it. Right? He said, "I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men." Preaching is the avenue God uses to drive the gospel into the hearts of the masses. How do you get the word out? to those who are antagonistic against the gospel without being cut off? How do you proclaim the truth that there is a day coming when the wrath of God will be poured out on all who refuse to believe in his only begotten son? How do you get atheists and agnostics, false teachers and misled podcast pastors who only want to go back and forth in empty disputes and circular reasoning to stop talking and just listen? And how do you bring the hope of the gospel, which promises that all, no matter what they have done, who place their faith in Jesus Christ, will be loved by the almighty God of the universe like they have never been loved before? By preaching the word of God. By preaching the word of God. When you preach, the word goes one way, out. It goes out to the masses. That's why the Apostle Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Then in verse 3, we see, see that an elder must not be a drunkard. The original word uh, here is literally by wine. That's B-Y. Not B-U-Y. Pastor Mike told me to go buy wine. No, I did not. It's speaking of one who is in the habit of having wine nearby with the intention to drink heavily. This man should not be admitted to the ministry. Sometimes when a preacher says, Jesus hung out with sinners, he's trying to make the case, oh so subtly, that you too should hang out with sinners. It's okay, because you want to influence them uh, for Christ. But I believe his presumption is wrong because his premise is wrong. Jesus didn't hang out with sinners the way they're presuming he hung out with sinners. Most of the time, the violent, the sexually immoral, the the covetous and the self-righteous would find out where Jesus was so that they could hear him and be healed by him or fed by him. Jesus wasn't looking for bars and parties to attend so he could sit back, have a few drinks while listening to their dirty jokes just so he can hopefully get a few scriptures in. And I'm not saying that you have to get rid of your unsaved friend, but I'm saying you don't want to fall for the line that you need to be like the world to win the world. Do not be deceived, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says Bad company corrupts good morals or good behavior. Jesus was always the one holding the mic, so to speak, directing the conversation to things about the kingdom. Verse 3 goes on to say, An elder must not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. An elder must react to difficult situations calmly and carefully. Always being considerate and gracious. He must be quick to pardon failure, and he's not one to hold grudges. He cannot be quarrelsome, but peaceful. He's someone who does not promote disunity or disharmony. Then, verse 3 ends by saying he must not be a lover of money. Elders must be motivated by love for God and his people, not finance. Right along with sexual immorality. Greed and covetousness are also major reasons for pastors to fall. When a church is seeking an elder, they should go back and listen closely to his previous sermons to see how often he spoke about material things. The false teacher is often covetous because ultimately he's not concerned with kingdom things or the things of God, but man. An elder's conversation should not be dominated by talking about his finances or his super fully furnished home. He he shouldn't be constantly reminding people how much he loves his car and how wonderful it rides and how comfortable the seats are. Some pastors may be so consumed with their stuff that even their prayer lives are affected. They, They may say prayers like, Lord, I thank you for my car. You have blessed me incredibly with such an incredible car. And I thank you for my wife, because she looks so good riding in my car. And I pray you would give me the courage to let her drive my car. Because although you hate divorce, if she should ever wreck my car, I believe you would provide an exception. Amen. Now on the other end of the spectrum the scriptures also do not teach that a pastor has to be sworn to a life of poverty. You won't earn a special place in heaven next to God if you decide on your own to live a miserable life. That's on you. Let me see, I'm sorry. Okay, skip that. All right. Point number four, the pastor's family. Verse five tells us an elder must manage his own household well. With all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The Greek word for manage, proistemonon, has two primary meanings. One is to supervise, and the other is to nurture. Fatherhood brings both aspects together. The father is the leader who governs the household, but the way he does this is by caring for the needs of each family member. Elders do the same thing in the household of God. They exercise their spiritual authority both by governing and by caring for each member of the church. And once again, no, you don't have to have a family to be an elder, but all fathers know being a father takes a special level of patience that you didn't even know you had. That if you would have, uh, if somebody would have told you that your child is going to do A, but instead of doing B, you're going to do something you didn't even, you couldn't even imagine yourself doing, because it comes out of love for the child, overall and for the long term instead of the short term shock effect. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. It may uh, cause someone to do some type of beha- behavior modification, but it doesn't change the heart of your child. To keep your children submissive does not mean you rule them with an iron fist. Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians chapter three verse 21. First, i mean, sorry Colossians chapter three verse 21. Fathers there are instructed to not provoke their children, lest they become discouraged. This is not easy. I'm preaching it, but it's not easy. Hi, Tamara. (laughs) Why? Because children come out of the womb little manipulators. Already. Another pastor I heard, he calls them vipers and diapers. But a man who cares for his children well is ready to care for God's children in the church. Why? Because he's already learned how to instruct, nurture, discipline, and deal patiently with rebellion. Verse five goes on to say, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The question is obviously rhetorical because a man should know how to keep his own house in order before he's appointed to keep God's house in order. The last two qualifications are not just for the good of the church, but also for the good of the elder himself. Verse 6 instructs us that he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. How many people here watch soccer? Okay, most of you are like me. No. Okay, but have you ever noticed when you've been watching the news and they bring on a soccer game and you happen to see it and you don't, have, you don't feel like getting the remote to change the channel and you notice how beautiful the grass look, right? They play on beautiful green grass, right? Grass When it's played on the grass field. Did you know these seeds are actually planted the year before? Now, the, the grass will come up looking beautiful in the autumn of that same year but they won't play on it right away. They'll wait till the next year because if they tried to play on it right away, right away with every kick, the grass would come up. Why? Because it has to endure the rough winter season. It has to stand the rigors of the violent winter season, and as it's wet, whether it's snow or whatever happens, a lot of rain, it gets to dig its roots into the ground, and so that when they're ready to play and kick, the, gas, the grass won't come up so easy, easily. Likewise, a young believer is not yet ready to oversee the church. He has not yet endured the winter season of spiritual warfare. The eldership is no place for beginners. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22, the apostle Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, implying it is much better to be missing an extra elder rather than to put a nervous up before the people serving as pastor. And finally, verse 7 tells us he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. If anyone aspires and desires the office of pastor, he should be able to provide excellent re- uh, references and resources, not only from those inside the church, but also from those outside of the church. One of his neighbors should be able to vouch for him. I know Tom. He's a good guy. As opposed to someone coming up to you months later and saying, do you know your pastors a drunk? Every Friday night, he's, he's passed out. As much as it's possible to discern, you need to know these things up front. And did you notice that both verses 6 and 7 make references to the devil? That's why one of the most important things every church member needs to do is to pray for their pastors. To pray for their pastors. Because you can best believe that Satan is out to get the elders of the church. Jesus himself told Peter, behold! That means, listen up, pay attention. Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Please pray for us that our faith would not fail. We need prayer because the best way to defeat an army is to take out its leaders. And with every passing generation, Satan has chiseled deeper and wider into the infrastructure of the church. He has caused massive damage to the church because many ministers have fallen into grievous sin by falling into the traps he has set. Rarely do the pastors fall Begin with the big, clearly seen, uh, gross act of immorality. Most of the time, it's the small steps away from the path of righteousness. The subtle turning of the eyes off of Christ towards the forbidden fruit of darkness. The The little things. He stopped meditating on the scriptures. He stopped speaking to people who could help him grow and began this Lone Ranger-type trek where all he does is prepare sermons, prepare lessons for everybody else while he's dying on the inside. Christ says, no, fill yourself up first so that what comes out of you is just overflow. Just overflow from what you have inside of you. Church, pray for us that we would not be ignorant of Satan's devices, his schemes, Pray that we would always keep our eyes on Christ who himself stood firm on the word when the wicked one came with the great temptations in the wilderness. We are Christ's under shepherds. That's why it's painful to watch when someone ignores the counsel of God. We share with them from scripture and end up falling into sin and sorrow. From the first day I came to Woodside till now Pastor Matt's love for you reminds me of Paul's love for the church at Thessalonica. Paul expresses that love in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 7 and 8. He tells them, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. That's the heart of a true pastor. That's the biblical role of a pastor defined. As pastors, none of us will ever be perfect, but we must always aspire and desire to preach the gospel to aspire and desire to guard the flock, to keep them from the wolves who are are, are roaming. As we listen to so many uh, uh, podcasts and uh, uh, so many topical sermons, it sounds exciting, right? Someone wants to preach on marriage, oh, I need to hear that. Raising children, oh, I need to hear that. Finances, I need to hear that. Godly disciplines, right? I need to hear that. But when you hear, when that's all you hear, you actually don't know the Bible and the big picture of the Bible. So that with all of these topical sermons, if poison is slipped in the middle and scriptures are read out of context, you don't know how to stand. Because he's been so good in this area, he must be right in this area. But be careful. Be careful. When Christ comes, the shepherds, the under shepherds, will have to give an account to him. According to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, we will be held accountable. And we want to be those who receive the crown of life when he comes. So I I pray and I ask you to pray. Help us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word, Lord. I I thank you that you have given the body of Christ under shepherds to guide them, to lead them to Christ, to lead them to you, to teach them the right way. Please help us. Please help us to help the flock. And please help the flock know how to discern someone who is qualified for the ministry. Lord, we we, we place our lives in your hands. We trust you with everything, Lord God. And when we begin to fail or wander from the truth, please bring us back. Whatever it takes, please bring us back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.